We turn in God's Word tonight, or our Scripture reading, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, a very familiar passage to us. Our text will be coming from verse 16. As we learn there about the uses of God's Word, the purpose of God's Word. Let's read the entire chapter. We understand the context in which that is given to us. 2 Timothy chapter 3. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. They will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped in every good work. As far as the reading of God's word. Let's again bow in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this word. May it be a two-edged sword. May it cut our hearts that we may see who we are, see our lives, that we may live lives that serve you. And be with Pastor Bob as he preaches this truth. May we hear how we can live that pleases you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. So we're in this series Sunday evenings, kind of in the middle of it at this point in time. Uh, entitled Tulip. 
We are used, uh, at least in our Reformed churches, to hearing about TULIP. For us in the Reformed faith, doctrinally, TULIP stands for us as total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. In our study of this TULIP, you see, tulips are plentiful. There isn't just one. There are many tulips. In our study here, we've taken that, those same letters, but applied them differently, not necessarily to doctrine, but to life. For in essence, there should never be a separation between doctrine and life. How we live is an expression of our doctrine, and our doctrine should it find its expression in how we live. We've looked at the need then for total humility before the face of God. We've looked at the necessity of unconditional kindness. This evening, we look at the subject of limited criticism. And I don't know if it's because we're Dutch for some of us. I don't know if it's because... We've been Christians for a long period of time. I don't know if it's because we're reformed or just because I'm getting older. But it seems like we live in a world in which criticism is no longer limited. It seems like we live in a world in which everything is fair game. And we do not put a guard upon our lips. We do not think about that which we say. We do not think about that which we write. Whether it be in a church survey, whether it be online and posted on Facebook or whatever, it seems like people just don't stop to think. Whether it's from the president's Twitter account or offhand remarks made by a former candidate for president at a gathering. People just don't guard their mouths. We, of the Reformed faith, perhaps fall into this as well. For we are quick to point out error. <laughs> oh, we are quick. Sometimes we, well, I won't say that about Little Farms, but sometimes we can't wait for the minister to get back in the back of church before we're, boom, in his face about something. Perhaps it was a two-second little statement that was made out of 45 minutes. Perhaps it's because we've got this idea we're so right and everybody else is so wrong that gives us the right to unbridled criticism. And I will admit I fall victim to this just as much as the next guy. It's so easy. It's so easy to fall in the trap of the world. But tonight, as we look at God's word, 
I want you to think and reflect about how God's word speaks to us that our criticism ought to be limited. Not non-existent, but there ought to be limits placed upon our criticisms. Because first of all, we have to understand from God's word that there is a need to be critical. This is of necessity. That's why I say this is not no criticism. That's what you might find practiced in perhaps certain areas. That's what perhaps some want in our world and society. They want a non-critical world. Don't criticize me, it's my choice. Don't criticize what bathroom I use. It's my choice. Don't criticize my lifestyle. It's my choice. Don't criticize my theology. It is my choice. Don't criticize my politics. Don't criticize this. Don't criticize that. Yet God's word tells us that is not who we are to be. God's word reminds us that there is indeed a definite need to be critical. First of all, when sin is involved, Luke chapter 17, verse 3. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. See, God's word doesn't call us when it comes to a matter of sin to simply look the other way, to pretend it does not exist. Scripture calls us to rebuke. What did 2 Timothy 3.16 say? What is one of the purposes of Scripture? But to reprove, to rebuke. That's one of the, in order to do that, you have to be critical. You have to be able to analyze. You have to be able to make judgment. A few years ago, I preached on that topic of, you know, that we should not judge and how it is a misused text within the Scriptures. And it is. Because people apply it to everything. When that's not what the text means. Here we have a text that says, listen, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Sin is something we need to be critical of. But critical does not mean criticism. Critical means we analyze, we observe, we judge. And we recognize the harm and the danger that this sin is causing in a brother or a sister's life. And that that sin needs to be dealt with. For unconfessed sin is indeed a grave danger. Secondly, there is the need to be critical not only when sin is involved, which my guess would be most of us would would see no objection to. But there's also the need when judgment of values is needed. Think of the scripture. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Now yes, there's a spiritual component to that. That's what Jesus is teaching in that statement, in that proverb. He's saying there's a spiritual aspect about it. In other words, don't give that which is simply going to be trampled on, don't take all your time and energy to something that's just going to be spit upon and trampled upon. 
But he's not only speaking spiritually, is he? That's the truth. Don't cast your pearls before swine. That means we need to make some, sometimes some value judgment. In order to make a value judgment, you have to be critical. Once again, not criticism, but you need to be critical. Let's go to the art museum. Let's walk through the art museum. And we look at a painting and we see that the price on the painting is 1.5 million. Perhaps most of us wisely would sit back and look at it and analyze it and say, is that really the value? Now we might look at it and say, no, I just don't like it. But then when we see who signed it, when we see who it's by, when we understand a little history of that painting, oh, maybe 1.5 million isn't such a bad thing. Even though when we looked at it, we go, who'd ever pay that much for it? In a very critical attitude. See, there's all sorts of value judgments. Should I pay $10,000 for this vehicle? Should I take my IRA and do this with it? Some of you are in the season of, of Medicaid, okay, where you have to make decisions about plan A, B, C, or D. You, you have to make some critical judgment. But don't cast your pearls before swine. Don't throw away that which is valuable. Don't waste that which God has given to you. Don't waste your resources. Be critical. Now, sometimes when you're, you're critical of something, people go, oh, you, all you do is criticize. Now, sometimes all you're doing is really analyzing. You're simply trying to not cast your pearls before swine. Oh, this would be a wonderful idea. You know, if you really thought about it, maybe it isn't such a great idea. Maybe that isn't the wisest move to make. First John 4 verse 1 tells us of the fact that even on the spiritual level, we have to make value judgments. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. What is testing? But analyzing. What is analyzing? But having a critical view of. Not criticism, but being critical of. Thirdly, there is the need to be critical not only when sin is involved, not only when a judgment of value is needed, but also when dealing with false doctrine. Listen to, these two, listen to this passage from Titus 1 verse 9. In dealing with an office bearer, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Rebuke. So if there, is a contra if there is someone who is teaching false doctrine, that needs to be rebuked. In order to rebuke, you had to make a judgment about that which was being taught in regards to the truth. In other words, you have to be critical of it. 
God's word is commanding us to be this way. But as I've said numerous times, to be critical does not mean criticism. Criticism is the idea or the idea behind it as far as I am using it is living the lifestyle of always having an attitude of criticism. Of always having the attitude that it's wrong, that it's bad. It is that that needs to be limited in us. It is that that needs to be checked. It is that that needs to be guarded. Let me place before you the following. In all of our criticisms, in all of our critical analysis, we must always be motivated by love. Never self. See, that's what, that's what Paul was saying to Timothy. That's what you got to guard against. This self-love. This idea of always being right. This idea of it always has to be your way no matter what. Because you're the smartest person in the room. Because you always have the right answer. And everybody else is always wrong. That is not being motivated by love. See, we need to be motivated by our love of God. Do all, Colossians 3.17 tells us, do all for the glory of God. Do all out of a love of God. Do all motivated by that love. Why would one come to someone who is in sin? Well, there's a number of reasons, right? It may just tick us off. We may just be upset. We don't like it. Rubs us the wrong way. Well, that's not the right motivation to be critical of that person. The fact that it is a sin against Almighty God, now that's a reason. Do all for the glory of God. Every word that comes out of our mouth, every word that we write in a tweet, every word we post to Facebook, every word we exchange in the narthex or around coffee is to be motivated by a love of God. The next time you have this urge, this overwhelming urge to be critical about something, ask yourself the question, before I say this before I write this. Am I motivated by a love of God? Is that my motivation? On these two commandments, the whole law hangs. Not just love of God, but love of neighbor. I am commanded, for example, in 2 Corinthians 13.10. This is why I write these things when I am absent. That when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority. See, Paul is saying, I don't want to be harsh. I don't want to be that way. I don't want to come with that hypercritical attitude and view. Even though I have the authority to do so. The authority God gave me for building you up and not 
tearing you down. Let's apply this to political ads this season. Wouldn't that be amazing? That if every political ad had to meet this standard. That my point of being critical of a stance or a position you have taken is not to tear you down, but to in fact build you Paul, in writing in the book of Ephesians, instead speaking the truth in love. We grow up to become, in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. We are to be speaking the truth in love. See, I think too often, myself and perhaps you, are more concerned about speaking the truth than we are doing it in love. And there is a difference. The command is not speak the truth. The command is to speak the truth in love. Am I really offering this criticism out of love for my brother and sister in Christ? Am I really offering it out of love For my neighbor. Or does it just make me mad. He's got six cars sitting in his yard. And he doesn't mow his lawn. Or am I really motivated by love? See that's the question scripture comes down to. That's why our criticism. You see. Needs to be limited. Needs to be limited because it has to meet that love factor. Love of God or love of neighbor. Secondly, we must use this when we are critical. When we do come to the point of offering criticism. We must do so with discernment. We have to be discerning. First of all, in that discernment, we must do so according to the word. Paul, in writing to Timothy in the very next chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 4, tells him, Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. What is the point, Paul says, of the word of God here in 2 Timothy chapter 3? God's word is what? Useful for what? Reproof and correction. You see, this is never an opinion page. This is never... My thoughts. This is never my leanings. If I have a criticism to offer, I need to be discerning and come with the word of God. What does God's word say in regards to this? And perhaps if God's word does not bear on it, maybe I ought to just keep my mouth shut. Maybe I ought to just limit my criticism and be quiet. 
If God has not seen fit to deal with it, if God has not seen fit to bring this forward in His Word, which is full, which is complete, which is whole, which is total, which we confess as Orthodox Presbyterians, everything we need for life and godliness is here. Not here. Here. Then maybe I need to be quiet. To do so with discernment, with a word. Not with a quarrelsome attitude. 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Not be quarrelsome. Not just picking the fight for the fight's sake. Not just being argumentative for the argument's sake. Not just picking something apart because I just like that kind of thing. That's not who we are to be. That's not who God has called us to be. So I have to engage in this critical area of life that I am called to as a Christian, but I must do so with some discernment. God's word, not out of a quarrelsome attitude. I must do so with wisdom. Colossians 3.16, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. What are you doing? You're admonishing one another. How? With wisdom. I'm reminded of... One time I had a poster, I probably should still have it and live by it a little bit more. It is better to be thought a fool than to open one's mouth and to remove all doubt. Maybe sometimes it's better to keep my mouth shut than it is to open my mouth and to offer criticism that is not very wise. Because maybe I think I know the whole story, but maybe I don't. Maybe I don't know even half the story. Maybe I don't even know a third of the story. Because I'm not offering the criticism with wisdom. I'm adding one. Our criticisms also ought to be with grace. With grace. There ought to be a certain graciousness even in our, even in our criticisms. There shouldn't be a hardness. It shouldn't come out of a bitterness. We, it, we, the other person or other individual should not feel in some way that, that there is an anger being vented upon them. Because listen to what God's word instructs us in Proverbs. 
Proverbs 16, 24. Gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Proverbs 17, 27. One who has knowledge uses words with restraint. And whoever has understanding is even tempered. You know, some of the quietest people I know are, are the most vicious when it comes to criticism. It's got nothing to do with loudness. It's got everything to do with temperament. Do we come with our criticism with grace? Is it adorned with grace? Is it covered with grace? Is it dripping? See, that's the picture of the honeycomb, right? It's dripping. It's oozing grace. It's just grace, grace, grace. And here comes the criticism, and it's so sweet. So delicious. That it's willingly taken and accepted because it came with grace. Lastly, it ought to come with a mirror. Every time, every time that you and I are prone to criticism and to be critical, it ought to come with a mirror. Matthew chapter 7, do not judge or you too will be judged for in the same way you judge others you will be judged and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Oh, and do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. So we have to come understanding that Scripture calls us to be critical. But our criticism needs to be limited by a love for God and neighbor, by discernment, and by the fact we must reflect Christ. In God's providence, in God's planning, because I didn't put it together this way, we had this morning's passage with tonight's topic. And I'm thinking... If I am Christ, could I find something to be critical of in Mark chapter 1 and Mark chapter 2, the passage we read? Could I open my mouth as Christ, the one who is all-knowing, the one who is all-seeing, the one who is all-holy, the one who is without sin, the one who is without spot, the one who has no plank, is there something in that text that would say, boy, could Christ go to town on this guy? Could Christ go to town on this person? Could Christ take them to pack? Oh, yeah. You know how I know that? Because later on, Christ is going to say, wow, Capernaum, if the works had been done in you, had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. But you know what? 
We don't hear a word. All those people flocking. Some coming for completely the wrong reason. I hear nothing. Even that leper. That Jesus knows he's going to go out and not do the right thing. Even that leper. Even though he speaks to him sternly. Can you imagine what he could have said? Can you imagine what could have come out of Christ's mouth at that moment? Can you imagine the long list of criticisms that Christ could have said? You ungrateful. You ungrateful leper. You disobedient. You unholy man. The list of criticism could have gone on and on. I think I need to be more like Christ. You see, that doesn't mean Christ never was critical. But he limited it. Because from his birth, he could have been talking to Mary and Joseph. What are you doing? He could have been talking to the Magi. What are you guys here for? He could have been talking to the shepherds and been critical of them. He is the Son of God, you know. He could have spoken. Think of all the criticism that he could have had hanging there on the cross that day. Thinking of all the things he could have said. Why in the world were you a thief? Why weren't you content with what God gave you? How dare you call out a challenge to me? And he would have been perfectly righteous and holy in doing so. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I think I need to be more like Christ. Think of what he did say. Think of what he didn't say. The next time you're tempted, the next time you're lured, the next time you're goaded into opening your mouth and being critical, ask yourself, is this an occasion on which I should limit myself? I should limit the criticism. Because Sunday night I sang in church, may the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day.
Father, we are by nature prone to being critical people. Critical of you. Blaming you. Critical of one another in ungodly ways. This is what sin does. Sin always distorts, takes that which is good and right and available for us as believers to use, and sin distorts it, it twists it. Lord, may we come to realize how your word applies to every area of our life. Help us to guard our mouths. Help us to be cautious. Help us to be careful. Help us to not cast pearls before swine. Father, the truth of the matter is, it seems like oftentimes we're critical of things that really are not sin issues. And that which gets us the most riled up is not an issue of sin. It's an issue of preference. Father, forgive us. And may the mind of Christ live in us from day to day. In his name, God's people say, Amen. We